0: You are listening to Season 2 of Future Ecologies.
1: Mendel. Hey. Can I tell you a story? Sure. I mean, that's why we're here. All right. um, It begins, as so many stories do, in New York. Of course. It's May the 25th, 1911, and Anton Beliskov... 13 years old steps off the boat the ss pannonia and onto u.s soil
2: pannonia pannonia what, okay what is
1: it's, it's it's like a interior roman province that is now present-day bosnia herzegovina serbia oh it's not just a hot sandwich no okay. yeah um and he's actually from dalmatia which is another roman name for the the coastal area just bordering pannonia
2: not the dogs that are in all fire stations that
1: is exactly where the name for those dogs comes from those dogs come from dalmatia
2: dalmatians
1: anyway dalmatia which is now known as croatia at the time coastal dalmatia like many parts of europe is is suffering economically and things are especially bad there because phylloxera which is this sap sucking insect from the new world that basically destroys vineyards had finally arrived in the area and it was decimating the local economy because grapes and wine were and are super important in Dalmatia. Mm -hmm. So Anton arrives in New York. He's part of this wave of economic migrants from this part of the world. And as far as I can tell, he's heading west to join his older brother, Yozo, who had arrived the year before and had found work in Aberdeen, Washington, out on the Pacific Northwest. Now, Aberdeen was by all accounts, at the time, a charming town full of gambling establishments and houses of ill repute, huh. earning it the nickname the Hellhole of the Pacific. Oof. Today, Aberdeen is probably best known as Kurt Cobain's hometown. But back in 1910, in addition to being a little rough around the edges, it was also an economic boomtown. If you go there today, the signs will inform you that it is the lumber capital of the world.
2: Yeah, I uh, I remember we passed through there actually. And I would say it
1: probably more qualifies as the clear-cut capital of the world.
2: It's, it's pretty
1: extracted. But back in the day, it really was the lumber capital of the world. The, the climate and the topography on the south end of the Olympic Peninsula had produced these massive old-growth forests. And Anton and Yozo spent the better part of a decade, alongside many other recent arrivals from Europe, turning all of those trees into wages to send home.
2: Oh, they must have sent back a lot, because a lot more bust than boom these days
1: yeah so fast forward to the early 1920s to make a long story short yozo and anton have weathered the first world war out in the western woods and they team up with their older brother mate who's the third brother and use the money that they've made in forestry Mm, or deforestry yeah deforestry uh to buy 30 acres of agricultural land in the central valley of california they're dalmatians after all the pacific northwest is too wet and cold for them and so they set about doing what they know how to do best, which is growing grapes. 30 acres of grapes, three brothers, and a new life in America. This is starting to sound familiar. Yeah. Incidentally, they got out of Aberdeen just in time. The depression hit the logging industry hard, and Aberdeen never really recovered, and that's why it looked the way that it did when we passed through. Hmm. Anyway, things are are good for a while. Yozo marries and brings over his sweetheart, Ivonica, and over the course of several years they have three daughters. Three brothers, three daughters. Good symmetry. Slavenka, Mary, and Anka are the daughters. They're part of this whole expat Croat community living just outside of Fresno, California. Sadly, Anton, who I guess we began the story with, and uh, Mate both pass away within a few years of each other, leaving Yozo and Ivanka alone to manage the farm. The daughters grow up and they get married, and the youngest daughter, Anka, moves with her new husband, Don, to the Bay Area. Don graduates from UC Berkeley and goes to work for Chevron, and they settle down in the Diablo Valley at the foot of Mount Diablo. I can't imagine being inspired to live anywhere called Diablo anything.
2: It's your family.
1: Does this sound familiar? It's your family. <laughs> it's totally my family. <laughs> yeah. Don is your grandfather. That's right.
2: Yeah. Aww.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this, is, this is the story of, of how I came to be. Um, I grew up in many parts of California, but the part of California that is most deeply imprinted on me is my grandparents' home in the Diablo Valley. In the shadow of this beautiful rugged mountain wilderness in what is now a sea of suburbia. And it's a mountain that I was always a little afraid of with its imposing presence and its ominous name, Diablo. Diablo.
2: So you've brought us all the way from Dalmatia to Cascadia, I guess from the, the Central Valley in California to the Diablo Valley. Where are we going next?
1: So I'm telling this story about this one branch of my family tree, the most recently arrived branch, as far as I can tell, because I think it's a very common, almost archetypical settler story. My immediate ancestors uprooted themselves and came to this continent, and they pulled wood out of the ground in Washington, and they pulled grapes out of the ground in California, and they were part of this giant machine that continues to pull oil out of the ground to this day. Hmm. From the forest, to the farm, to the city, to the suburbs, and and now... Here, that's how I came to be sitting here with you, making this podcast.
2: Exposed roots.
1: So, so that's just one story, and it's—I think it's a common story. It links me to this place and, and to my ancestors. But, but we're here because I want to introduce you to someone who has a very different relationship to this place and and a very different story about Mount Diablo.
3: Okay. My name is Karina Gould. I am the spokesperson for the Confederated Villages of Lashan and the co-founder for Indian People Organizing for Change of the Sigouryate Land Trust.
2: So what is the Sigouryate Land Trust?
1: We'll get to that a little later. It's story time, remember? <laughs> okay. Karina's ancestors live in what we now think of as the Bay Area since time immemorial. And they knew Mount Diablo as Tiyoshtak. So we're going to sit cross-legged for a moment and pretend we're fourth graders again.
3: No problem. One of the things I do when I talk to fourth graders is to, to really talk about the sacredness of what that place is to Yushtak and how it got the name Mount Diablo and how it um, really changes um, how you view some place when you think of it as the mountain of the devil or you think of it as the place of creation.
1: This story begins in the mission era, when Karina's ancestors were essentially being forced into indentured servitude in the Spanish missions.
3: So we have to understand that many times uh, when people were um, here in our territory, the Spanish missions, and missionaries and the Spanish military, they were often chasing our ancestors um, when they decided that the missionary system wasn't working for them. So my ancestors were being chased somewhere in uh, Soclan area. So that's the Contra Costa area. And um, they got to the bottom of what is now called Mount Diablo and they lost my ancestors. So there was all kinds of thick brush and there was no way for them to get through it. And so when they wrote down that they had lost my ancestors, they said there was no way that these Indians could have gotten away. So the only explanation was that there was a devil at the top of the mountain that pulled them up. And so the name Mount Diablo stuck. When I explain it to uh, kids, it's like, well, you know your neighborhood really well, you know your school really well, you know your house really well. And uh, so you know kind of the ins and outs of how to get around. And so for thousands of years, my ancestors had lived there in that area. So they knew how to get around um, Mount, what is now called Mount Diablo. It sounds like Corinna's ancestors really um bedeviled
2: those spaniards Oof. <laughs> forgive me
1: what's kind of funny is that the, the spaniards wrote down monte del diablo which probably actually meant thicket of the devil huh. because the word monte can refer to either a mountain or a thicket and they were definitely in the thicket of it <laughs> your turn so it's actually the americans who end up buying what is now called california from mexico who think the spaniards were referring to the mountain oh okay to your stack right And not just some thicket they were stuck in. Hence, Mount Diablo. Okay. And uh, I was one of those fourth graders back in the 90s, terrified of that devilish place.
2: (laughs) And here you are, still a fourth grader. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Corinna mentioned that Tushtak is the site of her creation story. As one perspective of of that place. What what does that name actually mean? What does Tushtak mean?
3: the holy place.
2: So, one fourth grader's nightmare is another fourth grader's creation story.
1: We can stop being fourth graders now. Oh, okay. You know, there are five sacred mountains in the Bay Area that I know of. One in the south, one in the north, one in the west and two in the east. We started with Mount Umunum in the south last season.
2: Right, I remember.
1: And we talked about repatriation and restoration. Now we're going to Tiershtak in the east, and today we're going to talk about rematriation and reparations. Stick around.
0: Broadcasting from the unceded, shared, and asserted territories of the Penelicate, Huitsum and other Halkaminum-speaking peoples, this is Future Ecologies where your hosts, Adam Huggins and Mendel Skalski, explore the shape of our world through ecology, design, and sound.
1: Okay, so to start off, we have to get the lay of the land and straighten some things out. Because, get this Mendel, Settlers made a lot of incorrect assumptions about Karina's ancestors when they arrived and started writing things down. Huh. Imagine that. Karina and her ancestors are part of a whole complex of villages and family groups that historically spanned the entire Bay Area, from what is now Vallejo in the north down to Soldad in the south. Collectively, they've
3: been referred to as Ohlone peoples. So when we look at the history of um, what Ohlone is. Ohlone is a generic name. And we took on that name as a way of getting away from the word Costanoan that was given to us by the Spanish. And none of the old text does really denote that we were eight different organizational tribes within eight different language groups. We had eight different creation stories, and our songs and our dances were different. And I think that... Now in history, it's given us the ability to actually take back our own names, our traditional territorial names. And so for us, LaShawn actually talks about the creek that we're from, which is now San Leandro Creek in the Bay Area. Um, It sits between the two territories of Hu Chin and Yalquin, and my ancestors are on both sides of that creek. I'm um responsible to this land and so I've always been here my ancestors have always been here since the beginning of time.
4: Mm.
1: The territory of Huchin that Karina is describing comprises the majority of the heavily urbanized East Bay area which includes the cities of Oakland and Berkeley and Alameda Emeryville Albany and Piedmont.
2: There's a there's a lot going on there. There's
1: a lot of cities. Yeah. Chochenyo is the traditional language of this territory which was and is a politically complex landscape.
3: So in no time during history was there an overarching one tribal government. And so today in the Chochenyo-speaking language area, there are four different tribes that um, work together sometimes and not so much together other times. So Mwekma is one of those tribes, the Lashon, Confederated Villages of Lashon, Humarin, and Ohlone Tribe, Inc. are the four tribes that are within the Chochenyo-based area. Wow, this is complicated and even coming from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah,
1: it's it's complex. And this is just one of the eight language areas within Ohlone territory. And we're talking about the Bay Area. There are around 10 million people living in this territory now from all over the world. There are actually more indigenous people from elsewhere in North America living here than there are Ohlone people.
2: That. That's wild.
1: The reason that I bring all of this up is that if, if you ask most people living in the Bay Area, they have no idea whose traditional territory they're living in. And mm. it, and if they're familiar with the Ohlone at all, they're probably not familiar with the different language groups and, and tribal organizations and territory names. And and that's due in part to the fact that not a single one of the many modern Olone tribes is federally recognized.
2: Hey, so, I'm Canadian, what, what does that mean?
1: Basically, it means that the U.S. government acknowledges the existence of a given tribe as a nation unto itself and forms a nation-to-nation relationship. And this comes with a whole host of benefits and has historically been accompanied by the setting aside of reservation lands. Right. To date, there's not a single federally recognized tribe within Ohlone territory, which is a huge territory. There are no treaties governing the territory and the relationships between the Ohlone and the government. Like much of British Columbia, the Bay Area is essentially unceded territory.
4: Hmm.
2: How
1: is that possible? Basically, with the stroke of a pen.
3: So I grew up knowing that I was Ohlone and that my ancestors had been enslaved both at Mission Dolores in San Francisco and Mission San Jose in Fremont. We are part of a group that was from the Verona band. And then in 1928, I believe it was, the government stopped having government to government relationships with us. And then we were not recognized by the federal government anymore. So there was nothing that was an act of Congress, nothing by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It was just that there was a drunkard who was in charge that decided that, for all intents and purposes, we didn't exist anymore, and there was no need for the federal government to create a pot of money to buy land for the homeless Indian population. And that's really how we lost being recognized on this land by the federal government. Whoa, all it took was one drunkard? I, I can't confirm or deny
1: the, uh, the drunkard aspect, but, but I can say that in 1927, the Indian agent Lafayette Dorrington, vested with the responsibility to procure reservation lands for the Verona Band and over a hundred other bands across California, instead decided, with the stroke of his pen to unilaterally sever all ties and responsibilities to these communities. Oh, His actions have been described as gross negligence and crass indifference but nevertheless he was able to effectively make 135 different bands just disappear so so none of the groups in aloni territory have yet managed to regain the recognition they lost that day in large part because the us government places the burden of proof on unrecognized tribes to show continuous descent government culture and territorial occupation
2: you're saying that the us government after forcibly dislocating a tribe, disrupting their language and their culture and their government, more or less denying their existence, says to them, okay, if you want us to recognize you, then you need to show that you've consistently maintained everything that we've been actively trying to take from you for the past two centuries. That's exactly what
1: I'm saying. That's absurd. Yeah, and, and, and for listeners that aren't super familiar with the genocidal history of California, listen back to episode 1.2 of our first season. We discussed this in depth with Valentin Lopez of the Amamutsun, which is another Olone tribal band. S- suffice it to say that by mid-century, the Olone had lost their recognition, lost their lands, their sacred sites, artifacts, and essentially gone into hiding to avoid being further targeted, harassed, or, or killed. And slowly, since then, they've Emerged from hiding and gotten organized, and even despite centuries of of genocide and and the deep contradictions of the recognition process, the chechenyo speaking alone are are clearly still here. They haven't gone anywhere.
3: And luckily, uh, my great grandfather Jose Guzman was one of the last speakers of the language, and was able to hold on to that language. And I feel like there are there were people that were historically put in place what I believe, by my ancestors in order to hold this information for us to be able to survive today. So J.P. Harrington was one of those people. He was a linguist who many people think was went crazy trying to put down the language for many different uh, tribal people that were going to sleep. Um, and so one of the people was my great-grandfather. And so we're lucky to have J.P. Harrington's notes and then also that he... Um, taped my great-grandfather on wax cylinder, and we found those songs at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. and along with this other guy named Nels Nelson, who I think was kind of nutty too, was an archaeologist that worked for UC Berkeley and in 1909 knew that there was so much development happening in the Bay Area then that the sacred sites, our, our shell mounds, would disappear. And so he created a map of 425 shell mounds that ring the entire Bay Area, our ceremonial places and cemeteries, our village sites. And so it's because of the work that they did before we were born, before we were thought of, um, before my parents were born, that we were able to take this information and to recreate these places and to talk about them and to do our spiritual obligations to these places um, and to pray there. So
2: these, these shell mounds that she's talking about by another name, you might call those shell middens, right? Totally. Which are? They're they're like massive accumulations, uh, agglomerations of discarded shellfish shells and other human detritus, um, signs of of the kind of life that was going on in an area near near village sites, near continuously or, or discontinuously occupied places over many hundreds and thousands of years. Often these places were used as cemeteries or sacred sites, and we go into them in some detail back in episode 1.2. We did indeed. With the wiat.
1: So over 400 of these mounds, some of them incredibly massive, were mapped around the edges of the San Francisco Bay. Which gives you an idea of just how many Ohlone people lived there, and for, for how long. And it's these shell mounds that start Karina on a journey that will lead her to help found the first women-led indigenous land trust in North America. To tell this part of the story, we need to introduce you to Jonella LaRose. She comes from the Shoshone-Bannock tribe from Fort Hall, Idaho, and she's been living in the Bay Area and working with Karina for decades.
0: In 1999, we were created a group called Indian People Organizing for Change, and we were doing community organizing in the um, Oakland area. I didn't know anything about California Indians, honestly. Uh, I didn't know about sh- I didn't know what a shell mound was, and um, we came across the Emeryville shell mound that was being developed. It had already been developed, actually. It had been ra- um, It used to ha- it'd be a dance hall. There used to be a dance hall that sat on top of it, which is very strange because, you know, it's a burial site. It's a, a living mound. You know, they leveled it off and put a dance hall on top of it, which is dancing on dead people. is very strange.
1: Uh, Michael Jackson. Yeah. yeah. Anyone. And, and and since you mention it, haunted buildings constructed on so-called Indian burial grounds were part of so many horror movies in the 1980s. Yeah, it's a bit of a trope. The Shining, Pet Cemetery, Amityville, that this trope has been heavily parodied since.
0: That was Raz, that was uh, leveled, and then it became a Sher- Sherwin-Williams paint factory. Then the, finally that was abandoned, and so the property in Emeryville Wasn't really worth much at the time. You know, it was a lot of vacant lots. Now, of course, it's all built up and became prime land, you know, prime real estate. And they were going to build the um, Emeryville Mall. We call it the Dead Mall.
1: And now we've gone from The Shining to Dawn of the Dead territory.
0: We read about it in the newspaper, we're like, what? You know, we couldn't believe it. And at that time I was a union carpenter working for the Carpenters Union. And so we had a, um, there was a non-union drywall company on one side of the site that we were picketing. And on on the other side of the site was was Indian people organizing for change, picketing the site. So it was really a lot of stuff going on, and I was running back and forth and talking to my boss about this thing is happening, you know, and he was all for it because the more pickets, they were happy, right? So <laughs> so, so it was just really kind of a madhouse. But we, we couldn't, of course, stop the construction. It was just like this big machine that was just happening, you know. But at the time, they found 127 bodies in the... Uh, which is now the IKEA parking lot. They found many bodies, which is now the Forever 21 and Victoria's Secret, many bodies all over there. And a lot of them were infants. And then some of the burials were, um, some of the bodies were taken to UC Berkeley and many of them were taken to the dump. And I know this because um, I talked to some of the workers and I said, do you know, Uh, they were hauling black plastic bags. And it sounds, doesn't sound real, but it is true. It is true. And um, and I asked him, he says, oh, yeah, you know, we were like, after all was said and done, we started a, uh, what we call the, um, you know, the Black Friday, the dead mall um, protest. So we this is our, I think this is our 20, 20th year, the day after Thanksgiving is when we have this protest and it's grown and grown and grown and grown. So it's like 400 people, it's getting like really massively huge, you know. But just to say that, you know, all cemeteries are sacred, and that, you know, this is a cemetery. Emeryville Mall is built on a 3500-year-old sacred site. Respect
5: Indian rights. Respect our sacred sites. Do not shop the mall. Do not shop the mall. Respect our rights.
3: Respect our ancestors. Respect our dad.
4: I am driver. driving Locked on Shellmount
1: Street our down here in our Emeryville, making a left turn on a street called Olone Way. I have been to the Emeryville Mall, which is a mall right near the train tracks somewhat infamous because it was built right on top of one of the largest midden sites in the Bay Area but now all that's left are overpriced shops and this kind of memorial pocket park with some tasteful plantings and plaques that talk about what used to be there and uh, a, a miniature decorative artificial midden if, if you can believe that I hate that I can believe that <laughs> so um, after the battle in Emeryville Janela has this idea.
0: In 2005, I had this idea, I don't know how it came to me, but I had this idea, we should walk the mounds, the shell mounds, and there are 425 of them. So we walked the whole bay, which is almost 300 miles from from Vallejo across the Golden Gate Bridge and into Marin. And so we walked for uh, 19 days and we were walking and all of these people started to join us. And by the time we got around, it was like, 150 people, but they came from all over the world. It was very strange. We were like, where did you guys come from? Nova Scotia, uh, Cape Verde, new zealand australia japan it was like wild like how did you guys hear about this thing and
3: know? we walked to many of the 425 shelf mounds throughout that and we stopped at them and we prayed and recognized our ancestors and um what we found were you know parking lots and railroad tracks and bars and schools and apartment buildings and streets but we knew that whatever was on top was only um, a smidgen of what was laid beneath. And so we knew that our ancestors were there and we prayed there.
0: And when we did that, it was really interesting, a lot of these people came from all the different neighborhoods and said, oh, I know, I found some shells in my backyard, or I found some um, grinding stones, and they gave us all this great information. And so it was their family history also.
1: So so Karina and Jonela had been visiting these places and uh, restoring them.
2: I love that word
1: and uh, gaining recognition and support for protecting these areas. And that's when the city of Vallejo decided that they wanted to build a new park on a long neglected and, and partly developed shell mound that had been an important trading and ceremonial site for Ohlone people.
0: So on April 14th, we said, well, we're just, we all, we were sitting around at this coffee shop that we all, Mugg's Coffee Shop in Vallejo, we always met there. And there's eight of us and we're sitting around, there's four women and four men, and we we looked at each other and we said, what are we going to do about this? You know, what are we going to do? And at the very same moment, everybody just said, we're going to take it. The next day, we all showed up and we put the word out and we thought, okay, we're going to get arrested, we're going to get the you know, hell beat out of us, there's only eight of us. Well, 150 people showed up. And because we're American Indians, Homeland Security showed up, the FBI showed up, um, the Coast Guard was out in the bay. We're used to this, you know, it's like it's been like 500 years of this, you know, it's going to take a lot more to scare us than that, you know, and we decided at that point that we were just gonna hold it as long as we could. So we held it for 109 days. And uh, at the time, the city of Vallejo was bankrupt. So they really didn't want to come in and arrest us. First, we thought we were gonna get arrested, like, oh, they're gonna come in and, you know, you know, mess with us. Then there came a point where we couldn't even get arrested, (laughs) no matter what we did, (laughs) But we decided we had this whole system set up, is where when the police would come in, they were there every day. And we were, the FBI was there. They would come and we would just stand around the, the fire in silence, you know, in prayer, or we would sing. The police were really like, what's going on here? And we'd just say, you know, can you step back? We're praying. And they, and they would step back. I mean, it's really wild. And, and they would just try and like get right in there and, and muscle us a little bit. We'd be like, oh, no, 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 you got to stand back. You got to stand back, you know.
2: So how did it all work out? What happened?
1: After a hundred days of the occupation, keeping the sacred fire burning, the city of Vallejo finally gives in. Victory. And settles to create a cultural easement for the park. But um not not with Jonella and Karina and the other IPOC occupiers.
2: Oh. Well with with who then?
1: With a, a federally recognized tribe. Aha. Uh-huh. Called the Yoche Dehe Wintun, Based out of the Central Valley. And this tribe didn't have such a direct connection to the place. They just happened to be the nearest federally recognized tribe. So they ended up allowing some of the development that Janelle and Karina had been fighting. Wow. So, bittersweet victory. Uh. <laughs> but um, the experience of holding that sacred space for all those months coming together, and uh, coupled with the city's decision to only play ball with a federally recognized tribe, it changed things for Jonella and Karina. Yeah,
2: no doubt.
0: We had this idea, oh, we're activists. We're going to we're going to do this thing. We're going to go in and save the land, but it really didn't work out that way. It really like the land saved us. It really taught us a lot during that time. And I think it just moved us to this whole other place in our thinking because you know, you're you're living outside, you know. And so we left Sigarete and um, I think it was a month or two later, Karina was invited to this meeting, a uh, uh, Native American land trust meeting in Southern California.
1: She had been invited by UC Davis professor Beth Rose Middleton, and she, and she had no idea what to expect. So when she arrives, she realizes that that she is literally one of the only women there. And, and she's talking to this man named Dune Lancard, who is the founder of the Native Conservancy
3: Land Trust in Alaska and has an incredible story in his own right look him up I was like so is this a boys club and he said yeah pretty much and I was like that's interesting I came back and I talked to Janella.
0: and so like she says oh man this is crazy I couldn't believe this meeting so she came back and she says let's start a land trust I'm like okay what's that <laughs> and we're still trying to figure that out <laughs> what's that
2: uh yeah I'm with her what is a land trust
1: fancy you should ask I actually work for a land trust as my day job
2: you have another job?
1: Yes. Can we talk about this later? Fine. Okay. Uh,
2: <laughs> We're going to talk about this later.
4: <laughs> yeah.
1: So, okay. Uh, a land trust is basically a nonprofit, a, a charitable organization that's committed to the long-term protection of the natural and or cultural heritage of land. That's from the dictionary. Hmm. If Karina and Jonella had had a land trust when Vallejo finally gave in on Segorite, they might have been able to hold that cultural easement themselves.
2: And it wouldn't have gone to that
1: federally recognized tribe instead. Correct. So so Karina immediately recognized that this was
3: the direction to go. Because it was a tool that we could have used to save Segorite, and then decided that it needed to be an Indigenous women's-led land trust. Not just an Ohlone uh, women's-led land trust, but Indigenous women, because through... Um, Re- relocation policies of the government so many women have been moved here for now the third and fourth generation of people that have not been able to go home to their own territories their children and their grandchildren live here we have relationships with all of these people and how is it that we can create these spaces also for them to have ceremony Um, to have foods that they traditionally had in their own homelands, um, a way for us to teach our children songs. And women are the first teachers, and we're the ones that hold the songs for the plants, and for the medicines, and for the waters, and that it's our responsibility. And when we look in the broader picture of men holding land, Um, What has happened to the land in the world has also happened to women's bodies. And so there's this correlation of the land being raped and women's bodies being raped and us um, being tossed aside and not being able to take care of ourselves. And it's important for that medicine to come back. But also because our traditional healers have also said that this is the time now for women to stand and take their uh, rightful place in the world and to work with our brothers side by side in order to fix what we have destroyed as human beings in order for us to survive. And so it really is about the rematriation of land. Rematriation.
1: Rematriation. Yeah.
3: I've.
2: I've never heard anyone use that word before, but
1: I get it. Yeah, you won't find rematriation in the dictionary. Um, It's People talk about their fatherland or their motherland, but when it comes to returning land or stolen objects to people...
2: Or even returning people to their homeland?
1: We use the word repatriation. Latin, patria, fatherland. Karina and Janella and other indigenous women across what some might call Turtle Island are starting to talk about rematriation.
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful idea, but how do you actually go about rematriating land?
1: Well, they were about to get started, but before they could, something monumental happened and caught everybody by surprise.
0: A protest in North Dakota continues to grow. All to prevent a pipeline from being built next to the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's sacred land. Over 100 Native American tribes have joined the fight against the project. We're still, here. We're still drilling! We're still here! For months, Standing
2: Rock advocates calling themselves water protectors have camped out around the construction
5: site through tear gas and blizzards. What have,
3: okay, let me go back a little bit when Standing Rock happened it was a place where people could actually imagine there could be something different in this world.
0: And so then here comes Standing Rock, right? You know, here comes Standing Rock. And and I think the walks, the Shell Mound Walks, the occupation of Sogoreate, and then, you know, all of the things that happened before that that our ancestors did. You know, Alcatraz and Wounded Knee and all of those things. You know, I was brought up in that. I was brought up in the American Indian Movement. So. When we got to Standing Rock, I mean, it was just crazy. You know, you have your own story about Standing Rock, but it just shifts your mind in such a way that you're never the same. You're never the same. And um, when we went through the gate in Standing Rock, I went there three times, we drove through the gate. Um, They said, you know, um, I think I'm gonna cry. (laughs) Um, They said, um, they said, welcome home, you know, and welcome to the real world. And that's what it was. It was like the real world.
1: Standing Rock, like Idle No More before it in Canada, was the moment that indigenous movements to defend the land and assert sovereignty finally broke through to mainstream consciousness in the U.S., despite a near-media blackout on the camp. And it got really real.
4: More like more so, the site on protest over the construction of a <laughs> <laughs> you
0: try to kill people. than 300 officers moved in with all terrain vehicles,
1: armored cars, and military grade Humvees, helicopters, and at least one area. It's hard to separate Standing Rock from the volatile political environment of 2016 and the stark policy reversals that took place when the Trump administration got underway. Hmm. One of the first executive actions they took, right, was to reverse the Obama administration's block on the Dakota Access Pipeline. Yeah. Which was eventually built and is now in operation. And scheduled to be doubled. Really? Yeah. (laughs) A move which the Standing Rock Sioux are currently fighting. Uh. At the time, though, back there in 2017, it it felt like a punch in the gut and a real bellwether for where we were headed.
2: I would would say it still does.
1: But um, one major outcome of Standing Rock was that settlers who participated in the camp went back home and started forming relationships with the indigenous peoples whose territory they lived on, often for the very first time. Tons of people from the Bay Area raised money for Standing Rock and participated in the camp which of course Karina supported.
3: But also to say, you're also on Ohlone land and what are you doing to create relationships with those folks? What percentage are you going to give to the work that they're doing here already? And it made people begin to question what they were doing. And it created a lot of relationships for the Seguritay Land Trust.
0: And we already had the land trust, we already had the movie Beyond Recognition. You know, we already had that, but um, and then, then here comes, comes Gavin LA.
1: <laughs> Okay, wait, who is Gavin? Right, uh, <laughs> because this is a podcast, you haven't been able to see Gavin. But he's been sitting next to Jonella this entire time. And my name is Gavin Raiders.
5: I grew up in downtown Los Angeles, and I've been living in the East Bay for about 18 years. And my ancestors come from Ireland, Germany, Mexico, and Lebanon. And my um, Mexican Lebanese family moved to Los Angeles in the early 1900s.
2: I'm I'm feeling a little left out. I'm basically the only one who hasn't divulged my ancestry on the podcast.
1: Are you feeling an, an urge to come clean?
2: Uh, my name is Mendel Skolsky, and I am the child of Jewish Eastern European immigrants who who come mainly from Poland and Ukraine and emigrated to Canada. Largely in the early to mid 20th century
1: thanks for sharing yeah I feel better Gavin and his partner Halle started the oakland California based planting justice
5: Planting Justice is almost 10 years old. We're a nonprofit grassroots organization dedicated to radically transforming our relationship to land and food in a way that uplifts people most impacted by food and economic injustice. We founded the organization with an intent to create family sustaining living wage jobs for formerly incarcerated people for people coming home from prisons and jails. And so we started by building gardens, uh, backyard, front yard, edible landscapes for people across the Bay Area. We've done about 450 garden builds in the past 10 years. Um, now we're sitting here at a, at a nursery that we acquired from Mark and Karina up in Orleans, California called Rolling River Nursery and there's about 25,000 trees on this property. It's a two-acre empty lot in DP Oakland, in a community that has been systemically disinvested and over-policed for
1: 50 years. He forgot to mention the educational work that they do in schools and prisons and the four-acre food forest farm they started in El Sobrante, which is a part of the area that literally means the leftovers in espanol. That's a pretty loaded name. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, wow. Planting Justice is one of the most inspiring organizations around, and uh, full disclosure, I've put in several stints of work at their nursery, grafting fruit trees. Working there was how I found out about Sagariate, and where I met Jonella. Gavin and his partner, Halle, they went to Standing Rock, too. <sighs> uh, Hale and I brought
5: our kids to Standing Rock as well, too. Um, and like Janela said, it just changes you, you know? And, and we, were, we were called while we were there to go home and recognize that all land is sacred. And so we came home to the Bay knowing that the land that we were working on in El Sabrani, the land that we were working on in East Oakland, that we needed to find ways to re-indigenize the, the, the land. Um, you know. And here's Diane Williams and Janella and Karina, these powerful uh, indigenous women in our community um, coming forward to us saying, you know, we're, we're going to do this with you. And all Halei and I had to do was say yes. We knew that we wanted to make sure that this land would stay with indigenous people and indigenous stewardship
1: for as long as, as it's here.
2: Is it, is it raining? Where are you
1: recording this? Um, that is rain. We're actually in a greenhouse on the land that Gavin is talking about, at the Rolling River nursery that, that Planning Justice operates. It really is deep East Oakland. You can hear the highway that runs right by there, and they have to deal with issues that most nurseries don't experience, like high-speed police chases and burning cars.
2: Cars, plural, cars?
1: Yes, yes, plural. There have been multiple burning cars at the nursery. Ugh. But uh, th- this piece of nondescript Cast aside land actually borders San Leandro Creek and the historic village site of Lashon.
0: This area, like <clears throat> just beyond those apartment buildings, is uh, used to be called San Leandro Creek, but now it's called Lashon Creek. And so, planning justice borders um, the Lashon Ohlone village and the Hakin Ohlone village. So, it's pretty wild that we're right in this area that where it just crosses. We're right in the center of it. Yeah. So, and this is Karina's traditional territory. So it couldn't be any wilder than that. It's just like the creation is like, okay, people, you meet and you do this thing, <clears throat> yeah.
3: <laughs> because it's right along LaShawn Creek. So it's on our territory for sure. It's a half a mile from where I live right now so I can walk there. That there's this uh, piece of land that's, that's being given back that had um, been a part of us um, at the, the Lashan people since time immemorial, and that we have this opportunity to clean that creek, to work with other people that are doing creek restoration, to bring salmon and uh, rainbow trout back up there, a uh, way for us to teach about language um, in that in that watershed, to um, bring back foods that we can uh, use and talk about with our kids, um, but to also educate the the broader um, folks that live in our territory now.
1: I spent several months grafting fruit trees on this land and watching Jonella and Karina come and go and work with the Ohlone youth to plant native species and prepare the ground for a ceremonial arbor. The, the idea is to create a place where Ohlone people and people from all backgrounds, indigenous or not, can pray and, and pass along traditional knowledge and, uh, and heal.
0: In, or, in order for us to survive this future, you know, like the coming of whatever's coming towards us, we have to have land, we have to have some traditions, we have to have some culture, we have to have some instructions about how to live. And so I'm not saying that I know all these things because I don't, but I think together we're really learning, you know, we're really learning how to treat each other, you know, and um, and so when we lit the fire back there, the first um, sacred fire on free Ohlone land, in 200 years here at the nursery right there yeah so um and there was just a small group of us and the young people from that had gone to standing rock and been in those battles the one on october 27th the one on november 20th everybody was water cannoned and all of that they came and they they told the story about being there and so you know we lit that fire and um and I think that was really healing for them. I think we need to do it again. We've done it several times already, but we did it here at Planting Justice and it was just so beautiful. And so this idea that we're all learning, we're all learning at the same time and, and teaching each other, you know, about what it means and, and what the sacred is.
2: So Planting Justice has returned this piece of land to the Ohlone people through the Tay Land Trust.
1: Yeah, and th- and this is just the beginning. Karina and Janella and their allies and accomplices are eyeing small pieces of marginal land all across Huchin, Oakland. Right with the aim of creating a patchwork of Olone held
3: land. In our territory, it's all urbanized. And so we have to look at these little plots here and there, checkerboarded throughout the territory that um, conveys this message uh, that this is, uh, this is indigenous territory. This is land that has been retaken care of by indigenous people and stewardship in a different kind of way. So how are they
2: actually going to go about getting that land back? I understand that land in the
1: Barrier Area is not cheap. Well, how, how does any self-respecting nation raise funds to secure land? They tax people? Precisely.
5: I'm tax so,
1: oh. what do you mean by tax? Remember our friends at the Wiat tribe?
2: Uh, of course. Uh, They took us on a boat to their sacred island. I'm not forgetting that anytime soon. Um, And sidebar, the city of Eureka just a couple weeks ago gave the rest of the island back to the Wiat. So huge celebration there. It's
1: very good news. Very good news. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and check out episode 1.2, which we've said like three times this episode. Yeah. I guess they kind of are a bit of a pair. Anyway, uh, the WIAT had come up with the idea to ask settler people for a quote-unquote honor tax to help fundraise to get the original piece of land on Indian Island back. And some settler folks who were involved with Sagariate Land Trust saw this and asked permission to borrow the concept. The idea is simple. If you live on stolen land and benefit from that economically, and there's a tremendous amount of money that's being made and exchanged in California then you should give back as a small way of recognizing this. And thus was born the Shi'umi land tax.
3: The Shi'umi land tax. We've never been comfortable with the word tax because it comes with this, you know, really bad connotation, but we couldn't figure out another word, but Shi'umi in the Chochenyo language means a gift. And so how can people that live in our territories now participate in being a part of this idea of putting land back into Indigenous women's stewardship.
1: When I asked him about it, Gavin totally acknowledges that just giving land back may not work for everyone, but in the meantime, there's this other really great strategy that
5: Segorite Land Trust has of the Shuumi land tax, um, which Halle and I pay um, as renters in the Bay Area. Maybe you can't deed your land to the land trust, but you can recognize that you're living and gardening and taking care of your children on land that was stolen, that was unceded. Um, where there was a genocide not that long ago. And so people are encouraged, and we encourage everybody to pay their land tax, and you can find that through the Segorite Land Trust website.
2: Segorite... Here we are. I'm on the website now, and there is a cool territorial map. That's really neat. Uh, And a description here, which says that the Shuumi land tax is... A voluntary annual financial contribution that non-indigenous people living on traditional Chochenyo and karkin Olone territory make to support the critical work of the Sigoriate Land Trust. This has to be one of the first times that the words voluntary and tax have ever been used in the same sentence. Keep scrolling. Okay, uh... There's a calculator. That's hilarious. So, um, I see. So depending on whether you rent or if you own property and the number of bedrooms, it'll give you a, a base level of voluntary monthly tax to pay, sort of a suggested donation. Not particularly unlike our Patreon as a, as a listener supported podcast, um, people can Support the show at Patreon.com/slash/FutureEcologies.
1: Yeah, it's it's like it's like Patreon. If if you leave out the history of genocide, <laughs>
2: well, I can't speak for all Patreon campaigns. Was it a bad time to tell folks how they can support the podcast?
1: There is never a bad time. But but if you live in the Bay Area, you should maybe consider paying the Shuumi tax first.
2: It it's a really neat idea,
1: and it's the central funding mechanism for the work that Segreote does. I. I think that the the word tax, it still sounds off, right?
2: Like it still has those negative connotations.
1: Would you prefer a a tithe? Mm, uh, (laughs) How about a levy? No, sorry. Excise? No. Toll? Mm,
2: No. Tribute? Oh God, this is sounding pretty medieval. Okay, then how about rent? I hate paying rent. I don't really know anybody who loves paying rent. But then again, it kind of has the right implications here, right? This is territory that still belongs to indigenous peoples, right? Especially since there was no treaty at play here. If we are living here or the the people of the Bay Area are living there,
1: we should pay rent. I can get behind that, I guess. Then you should hear from my friend Sienna. I'm like personally connected to everyone in this story. Jesus. (laughs) It makes me the worst (laughs) journalist ever. (laughs) Uh, Are you going to disclaim that at (laughs) the end? I should not be doing this.
6: My name is Sienna Ezekiel. I'm part of the Duwamish Solidarity Group in Seattle. I've grown up here, and so this place is really meaningful to me. And upon returning here as an adult, I realized how little I knew about the long-standing Indigenous history here. And so I grew a desire to learn more and to get involved.
2: Okay, so we we've teleported and we're in Seattle.
1: Yeah, and much of the area of present-day Seattle falls within the traditional territory of the Duwamish tribe. Although Chief Seattle of the Duwamish signed a treaty in 1855 with the federal government guaranteeing reservation land and fishing rights, the government- Oh, I sense a spoiler. did not honor its promises. And the Duwamish, like the Ohlone today, lack reservation land and federal recognition. And like the Ohlone, the Duwamish have been in fruitless court proceedings with the federal government over the issue of recognition for longer than either you or I have been alive and have been denied multiple times.
6: To me, it seems like the land was seen as so valuable that the Duwamish were not given the reservation or, you know, their piece of land that they were entitled to through the treaty that their chiefs signed.
1: So I, I actually researched this, and uh, it's, a, it's a pattern that holds pretty steady up and down the west coast of the U.S. when it comes to tribes in urban areas. The Duwamish of Seattle, Washington, the Chinook of Portland, Oregon, the Ohlone of the Bay Area, and the Tongva of Los Angeles all remain unrecognized and largely disenfranchised. The San Diego area with multiple federally recognized tribes seems to be an exception, at least in this respect.
2: I see the pattern though, right? Like it it all comes down to the high value of land around major cities. And and when push comes to shove, recognizing these tribes would potentially be a very expensive proposition, right? The land is, is just too valuable to give up
1: which is exactly why normal people living in cities like Siena are working with the tribes to help in any way that they can. The Duwamish Solidarity Group was basically just playing a supportive role, and then one of the members of the group spontaneously had the idea for a monthly rent that people could pay to the Duwamish.
2: So this is independent of the Shumi land tax?
1: Yeah, and, and that's how Real Rent Duwamish was born. I guess this idea is just in the air, waiting to be snatched out and put into practice.
6: We want to see this spread, yes. Which is why it's called Real Rent Duwamish, because if other people want to use Real Rent, the name or the concept, or evolve it in any way, we would be thrilled to see that. I think there's so much potential for this to spread. There's so many unrecognized tribes, and tribes who are recognized, who are under-resourced.
1: Since it started back in 2017, Around the time I started working on this episode, (laughs) almost (laughs) three and a half thousand people have signed up to be monthly renters. That,
2: that's a ton of people. That's, most people pay their taxes because they don't really want to go to jail. And most people pay their rent because they don't want to be evicted. In the best light, this relationship is, is kind of mutual, but... It's kind of at its root, it's coercive, right? like it's
1: always under threat and and at a time of such intense political division in the u s it's it's one of the major fault lines that runs through the whole issue, right? Like have we as as citizens been taxed enough already? or do we as beneficiaries of of this system from many walks of life really owe these extraordinary debts that we that we need to try to address?
2: Yeah, yeah, this sort of voluntary taxation. There's a strong contrast there to the dominant ideology of tax cuts and trying to trying to minimize our social and communal obligations to each other.
1: Which is probably why the Duwamish solidarity group went with the concept of rent. Mm-hmm. Slightly less political.
6: Everyone is paying rent or a mortgage or at one time has. So it's really relatable. And what does it mean to pay rent or tax when you opt into it when you're choosing what does it mean when you are making that intentional choice that yes that's actually where you'd like some of your money to go if you could choose it's opting into the world you wish existed um or you want to exist and you want to support
2: oh, she's uh she's really selling me on this even though it's just kind of uh, a reframing of of a donation, I guess.
6: Yes, exactly. So the, the Duwamish tribe has had, you know, a website for many years and a donation button on that website. But now there's this additional website that invites, I guess it invites donations on a, almost like a louder platform and a very direct platform kind of telling people why this is needed and why this is just and invites those donations to be reoccurring.
2: So, it it strikes me that it's really great that Planting Justice and Real Rent Duwamish are stepping in where our governments are just failing,
1: or or succeeding in a long-term strategy of malign neglect.
2: Yeah, and and this is where I'm kind of split. On on one hand, this is great, and I wonder if some people who might think that they're taxed too much by the government and really don't trust the government to spend their money wisely or or carry out their values, whether they might actually be willing to pay voluntary rent or tax, if they understood the circumstances. At the same time, I, I feel like there just won't be meaningful justice for these tribes or, or really for other disenfranchised groups until our government, our our formal institutions make real apologies and then actual restitution or, or reparations
1: or rematriations. I, I totally agree. But until then, those of us who know better and, and can afford to can pitch in to help. And possibly... We can also help show our institutions that more and more people are committed to trying to make things right, right? To kind of build that political momentum. Also, maybe, you know, we can build something really beautiful together right now. Why wait? Speaking of what's possible, Tay's latest initiative has been to save the West Berkeley Shell Mound, one of those 425 shell mounds which is currently paved over by a parking lot. They, alongside with the city of Berkeley, have actually been fighting developers in court for years to prevent the development of this particular piece of land. And the, the reason that they're fighting so hard for this site is that it is the oldest recorded
3: village site in the Bay Area. This was the very first village very first place human beings lived along the bay in the Bay Area. And so it needs to be important to everyone that now lives here. Isn't it our responsibility to save um, this, these special places that have a direct connection to the very first people that lived here along the Bay?
1: And, and as they were going to all these zoning meetings and hearings and court dates, to fight the developers, they realized that they needed to present a
3: vision for what they wanted to see the shell mound become. What we realized was that adults don't have really good imaginations, and that adults could, had been seeing this development and all this, you know, plans, and it looked all sharp, and it looked nice, And but then we decided to create an alternative vision to put in people's minds of what else we could possibly be there. And so we sat down at the computer and created a mound that doesn't actually go into the ground, that would be covered with poppies four months out of the year, that would be bright orange, and that people can walk all the way to the top and look and see the view that my ancestors would have saw 200 years ago at that same place. And to open up the space where Strawberry Creek had always run through there so that kids could actually play in a creek and actually see what it was like to set up a mini-like village. So there are Tule houses and an arbor there where people could actually come and dance, to create a space inside of the mound that uh, you could actually sit and see and hear and feel and smell what it would have been like to be at a shell mound 200 years ago. To talk about not just the past, Ohlone in the past, which is mostly what people do, but to talk about the resiliency of uh, our people and how far we've come and what we're doing now. And so to sit, put that out there, that's Chris Walker's work with me to, to just imagine something different, to take that back to the city and to say, look, can you imagine this instead? Can you imagine every fourth grader in the Bay Area that has to learn about Ohlone people, actually have a designated place to go, to actually see those things and to feel it and to be a part of it. Wow, that is beautiful. It's
2: so nice to, to hear about a vision of a, a modern culture reabsorbing a shell mound for those kind of community building purposes, right? A new application for it, a revitalization of this place that honors what it was and and what it, what it could be,
4: mm-hmm.
1: like. I, a museum is maybe not the right word, but like a, li- like a living museum that is also a, a place for cultural regeneration and even like a, a visitor info center, you know, like all of those things like wrapped up in one. Yeah. And okay, so this just in, only two weeks ago now, an Alameda Superior Court judge ruled against the developers in court, which is a major victory for the Segoria Tayland Trust. And uh, this time, maybe not just a bittersweet victory, the the vision actually may come to pass. Although, of course, people are going to have to get behind it.
2: Mm-hmm. So I just have one last question. It's been kind of a, a running conversation ever since the first episode of this podcast mm-hmm. about how those of us who find ourselves living or traveling in territory that is not our own, at least in a, in a deep historical sense, how can we live in, in recognition of this, but also in recognition of of the simple truth that many of us really have nowhere else we call home, nowhere else to go.
4: Mm.
1: I, uh, I, I talked to Karina at length about actually this, this very question because I had, I had, so I had, I had brought her some roasted, bay nuts as, as a gift um so actually we brought you some bay nuts oh thank you um, they're roasted and delicious. oh no yeah i don't know do you like them yes <laughs> <laughs> okay
2: you brought some of those to me too and they are incredible yeah every time i meet somebody from the bay area who i like think is on the level i'm like have you tried bay nuts and they're like have i tried bay nuts <laughs> yeah it's awesome
1: okay so obviously we're both enthusiastic about bay nuts nuts for bay nuts and in my enthusiasm for gathering some of this delicious treat that I miss so much when I'm not in California, um, I had actually totally forgotten everything that we talked with C-Swiss about way back in episode one about um, getting in touch with the people the land first. So I
3: actually, I, I asked Karina how she felt about it. People take advantage and take for granted their relationships with land anywhere they go. So we're in this time where you can jump on a plane or a train or a bus and cross territories all over the place and not have to acknowledge anybody. You can drop into New York and never talk to the original people of that land and ask permission to be there. And so what is that about? That we forget our very own roots as human beings of what is uh, good manners, right? And so I'll talk about a couple of hundred years ago that people actually knew what those territorial boundaries were. And even if you were another Ohlone person, you know whose family or whose tribe took care of which lands, and that you would stop at the edge of that territory, and you would put up a smoke fire, and you would wait for someone to come and get you and then they would bring you back to the main village and they would feast you and gift you and maybe gamble with you and then finally have the conversation about why you were there and why you wanted to go through their territory. And it may be just to have to visit or maybe because you needed to collect medicine or maybe because you needed to go to a village farther away and that you needed to have that permission to go through there. But it was never taken for granted that you had that permission. And that today we have this idea, you know, as individuals that we have the right to do anything we want. We were talking about to Yushtak and how people feel like they have the right to just go to the very top of our most sacred mountain. And that even us as lonely people cannot go to the top of that mountain that only our special medicine people were allowed up there during certain parts of the year in order to do the ceremonies that we needed to have done in order to bring balance to this place. But people never think outside of their own individual selves to, to think that they have to ask permission from anyone. And not just that we represent not only ourselves, but we represent a nation of people, not just now, but a nation of people from the past and that nation of people that's in the future. And so we're just a bridge for those folks. And so to really ask yourselves, as, uh, I guess, as human beings, it's like, what right do I have to go into someone else's territories and to take food without asking permission? Or to ask them if this is the place where they forage for food because maybe it's a place that a family is taking care and stewarding. So that then it becomes a relationship. It's like, I would like to steward this land with you, and then we could share the food together. It's a different way of thinking about it. It's like, oh, I'm not just here by myself, That there's other people that could be taking food from here as well. Um, And so really to think about that, I think, is that We have to change our concept of how we think of things. And I think what I say is that you have to go backwards in order to go forwards right now. We have to think about what our ancestors would have done, all of our ancestors, and how we could make it better going into the future.
1: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the Sagoriate Land Trust and pay your Shuumi tax, go to sagoriate-landtrust.com. That's S-O-G-O-R-E-A-T-E-landtrust.com. Or if you live in Seattle, check out realrentduwamish.org to pay your rent. Eureka listeners, you can find the WIATS Honor Tax at honortax.org. Finally, Visit shellmound.org to learn more about the West Berkeley Shell Mound and how you can help that vision become a reality. This episode of Future Ecologies was produced by myself, Adam Huggins. And me, Mendel Skolsky. We'll be back next month on the second Wednesday. Tell your close friends or anyone who you think might like what we do. Subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever podcasts can be found. It really helps us get the word out. In this episode,
2: you heard Karina Gould, Jonella LaRose, Gavin Raiders, and Sienna Ezekiel.
1: Special thanks to Ilana Finarev, Gavin Raiders, Sienna Ezekiel, the entire staff at Planting Justice, the Access to Media Education Society, and Simone Miller.
2: Music in this episode was produced by Spencer W. Stewart, Luke Okuda, Ben Hamilton, Volsi, Jose Guzman, Sunfish Moonlight, Hildegard's Ghost, Cat Can Do, and music from the Project Gutenberg Library. This has been an independent production of Future Ecologies. Our second season is supported by our generous patrons. If you like what we do and you want to help us make the show, you can support us on Patreon. Patrons get cool swag and an exclusive bonus mini-episode every month. This season, I am hosting a tour of the Kingdom Fungi, to support us and get access to these exclusive episodes, head over to patreon.com slash future ecologies.
1: You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and iNaturalist. The handle is always Future Ecologies. You can find a full list of musical credits, show notes, and links on our website futureecologies.net.
2: Thanks for listening. So in the, in the spirit of harvesting in your territory, I have a fruit for us to eat. <gasps> I'll be right back.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm so excited.
2: We have a fruit? Yeah. I'm wondering if you recognize
1: this. Yes, I know exactly what these are. <laughs> these are the fruits of the so-called strawberry tree. Yes. Arbutus Unido. Yes. The... Which, yeah, it's a relative of our native Madrone tree. Exactly. But which has been planted by landscapers literally all across the West.
2: It Yeah, surprisingly common on the on the streets or on the seawall, as the, as the case may be. But
1: I haven't had the fruits in a while because when I first found out that they were edible... I like binged on them so hard that I never wanted to eat one ever again after that, that like summertime, you know,
2: I, I hope this isn't a traumatic experience for you.
1: Uh No, uh, yeah. they are. Okay. So these are the funniest little, like yeah. they have a really weird, oh my God, they're cold and mushy. Yeah, sorry. Oh my God. They're cold and mushy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: they're, they're kind of the texture of like. If a, if a plum was just a little bit overripe and went all mushy, but it's the it's the entire thing.
1: Okay, let's give it a try.
4: mm Mm-hmm.
1: You know what? They're so much better than I remember them. <laughs> they are. It's, oh. it's nice that they don't... I think I just overindulged that mm. one time, you know?
2: It's nice like they don't have a pit, you know? It's just one big just just pure you can just pop the whole thing and not worry about it oh they're so gooey (laughs) yeah these guys were maybe a little bit over Mm.
1: oh yeah this one's a little alcoholic (laughs) shut up and eat fruit
2: Mm. i gotta say i like the fermented ones